Let's open them to the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Really appreciate Andy being able to come last week. Hope you all got to know him a little bit. And uh, he's preaching style. He's a great young man. Him and his wife, Debbie, and his four beautiful children. Uh, four sons from eight years old down to five months old. It was a busy time at the Rimmer house. Ephesians. I'm like Malik. He says, Dad, they should put this in alphabetical order. It would be easier to find. <laughs> I agree with him. I agree with him every time he says that. Ephesians chapter 4, if you have your book, uh, let's just read the first six verses. We're working on this. Uh, this is so important, this little passage, and we'll get into that more as we start. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we, as we open this book, we do so. We set before you hungry. We're starved for your word. We want to know more of who you are. And we want to know more rightly of what you've done. Because it's in knowing you. It's in understanding who you are. We see your glory, your goodness. Theology leads to doxology and we rejoice in the things that we learn. Because it all points to the glory and the majesty and the grace that you've shown us in your son Jesus Christ. It all points to life. It all points to your redemptive purpose from before the foundations of the world, as this book of Ephesians tells us, that you've brought to pass in time through the shedding of, your blood, of the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, onto the chronological time that you sent the Holy Spirit and we believed and heard the word of truth. And then we seek this truth. We seek the apostles' teaching. We seek what the Spirit has for us. Because it's the very mind and character and will and glory of you, Father. Go over my simple words this morning. Feed your people. Feed their hearts. Feed their souls. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we come solemnly, I think, formally, uh, dignified manner. We've worked almost a year. I think I missed a couple Sundays had a couple special messages in the first three chapters of this book, all to build to the last three chapters. And I would remind you that this book is hallowed ground. It is holy stuff. It is, as we get into the ethical and the characteristics of the believer and how that walk is to be applied and to happen on a day-to-day -day basis, it is hallowed ground, beloved, because it is what God calls us to do. So this is where the Apostle Paul begins to exhort, and he's not doing it of his own will, as we know from all the top of all of his letters. He's doing it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's doing it because he's been called by God. He's an apostle. He's been sent. 
He's doing it and he says to us these exalted words there in verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What an exalted sentence in the passages of scripture that we have. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So that statement is first, has first individual implications for each believer. And secondarily, it has corporate implications because as each individual believer, we join together to become the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these words that we're getting ready to work through over the next, Lord willing, year, year and a half, whatever it is, all have implications for the individual believer, but have greater implications for the church and the glory of God. And with that, I just want to take a moment and briefly review what we began to see in verse 1 of this passage because we need to keep continuity here with the context that is so very important so that we can see the tremendous profundity with which the apostle exhorts his people in the church today. For I declare to you what I promise to you is true, what I know to be true. There cannot be anything more important in the life of the believer and in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ than this notion of our life, of our walk the way we live out our Christian life, our attitude, our amplitude about what it means to be a Christian and how then one should live and be obedient to a Christian life that is worthy of the calling, that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called in the Lord Jesus Christ. So to do that, I want to point you one more time before we pass on from this this passage to that very important word in verse 1 of chapter 4. You see it there? I therefore. This is just a simple little conjunction, but in the profundity of Scripture it means so much. It becomes the basis for all of the apostles' argument. It becomes the foundations. If, If you understand the literature here through the simple grammar, it's not too much to say that everything that Paul will write communicate to the church, and the rest of this book is based. It all turns right here on this little word, therefore. That is to say, all of the proof and evidence he brings for the basis of his exhortation and all the rest of the three chapters of the book of Ephesians is founded on what he had just expounded on in the first three chapters. God's work in all of redemptive history, all of it. And you remember that we stated a couple of weeks ago, something fascinating, and I think this is this this is what keeps me up. I was up, uh, well, I was up cooking the pulled pork this morning till 1 a.m. All right, don't ever think that your pastor doesn't uh, uh, give give up time for you. But it just allowed me to stay up and read while that stuff was cooking because you put it on that cooker and it just goes for like 20 hours. And I can sneak over to my office and learn these precious truths. So, but I know you love them too. There are 41 imperatives in the book of Ephesians. 41 imperatives. And an imperative in the Greek and in the English is a a verb that carries with it a command. And that command, if it's not followed, is sin, damnable sin, because it's a command from God. It's an imperative verb. It's an imperative form. It's an eternally, uh, an eternal situation if you don't pay attention to these 41 imperatives in this book of Ephesians. It's not like a mother's exhortation to her child to keep their hand out of the cooking. Don't you, 
put your hand in the cookie jar before dinner or you're going to get in trouble. That's an imperative too. But it, 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 and in my house, listen, that carried with it some real consequences. Not, not eternal consequences, but that when I was six, they felt internal. My mom liked to spank me for doing things that I wasn't supposed to. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And, and my, my aunt, her, her sister's here. She can testify to that. You just ask her after the service. But even though mom's imperative was carried with it consequences, it didn't carry eternal consequences, right? They're not the same as God's imperative. Spanking is not eternal damnation. So these 41 imperatives are very important, but there's something more specific about the 41 imperatives here in the book of Ephesians. Only one of them is in the first three chapters. The other 40 in the chapters we're getting ready to study. And, of course, an imperative is something that God calls us to do. It's the first three chapters that carries with it all of the indicatives. That is what God has done for us. You see it if you just flip over quickly, and I don't want to spend too much time here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Every spiritual blessing. I don't know what all those spiritual blessings are going to be, but that is exactly what Paul is trying to say. Everything that God has done, including all of creation, which is nothing more than that grand stage, as Calvin says, on the, the grand stage where he carries out the grand drama of redemption, all of that is pointing, and Paul is building his foundation on the goodness of God, and because God has done this, therefore you must live like this. All 40 of those imperatives we're going to encounter in the second half of this book. And therein lies Paul's foundational exhortation. For your ethical behavior, beloved, the grand 40 imperatives. And the first thing I think about and I hear those words that you must live worthy of the salvation to which you've been called, I'm thinking, man, that must be one gigantic burden. It's like keeping my hand out of that cookie jar. Because I know I'm going to make mistakes. Because the cookies are good, right? That must be burdensome. How can I do that? How can I keep all these 40 imperatives to the measure and to the standard of what Paul is basing this foundation on? It's based all on the holiness of God. It's based on the goodness of God, the righteousness of God. And I told you don't be afraid of the word righteous because it just means that everything God does is right. And if everything he does right, it is also good. In other words, all the good things that God has done, all of creation, all of salvation, his sending of his son, his meeting us in our own walk in chronological order of time that each one of us could hear the word of truth and be saved, all of that, Paul is basing as a foundation, this must be burdensome. How can I walk worthy? How can I carry this load and fulfill these imperatives? But that's to misunderstand grace, beloved. For it is in fulfilling those imperatives that we get the abundant life. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And if I could just add to Christ's words, he meant, by this world of sin and shame. By this world of tragedy and hurt. By this world of death and disease and destruction. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take upon you my yoke. Learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly in heart. These words are not a mistake. These are the same words that we're reading in Paul in Ephesians 
humility or humble. King James translates it lowly. And from that humility or that humbleness comes meekness. And meekness is not weakness. Meekness is our Lord Jesus Christ. He could have any time called a legion of angels to take him from this place. But because he was humble, because he understood God's plan, he lived the life that he needed to live so that we could have his yoke and learn from him. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is what God is calling us to. He's calling us to live the Christian life. It's not burdensome. It's a, it, it's a call to have life and life more abundantly. If it is good for the church, beloved, you are the church. It is good for you. When we live by these statutes and these imperatives through the grace that God gives us, that's where we experience the power of who God is. When we try to do it on our own, I always nosedive, right? That's when we get into trouble. That's when we, ever, we have consequences and burdens is when we try to do it ourselves and when we live according to what God's called us to live. When we live a called according and worthy to the, what we've been called to live. Boy, I did that well. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. When we live that way, God gives us great grace. He gives us great grace. So I called, I'm calling this series... This, this passage is so important because we are, we are building a total understanding of what it means to be church as we go through this fourth chapter. We're going to take each one of these imperatives and each one of these ethical characteristics that God's calling us to be and do, and we're going to make a manual for what it means to be a member at Park Bible Baptist Church in Pennsville, New Jersey. How about that? Okay. And I know it's difficult, we're just on the edge of this now, but as we do, I'm calling all of this series Creating Christian Culture. Because Paul is laying down the foundational ethics for our living out a manner worthy of so great a salvation and living for so great a Savior. And the world culture here was utilized, not by mistake, because words mean things, and the meaning here is very important. The culture we are building and living is a Christian culture. Not a secular culture like the world believes it lives today, but a Christian culture. It is the way that Paul is talking about in verse 1 of life that is exhorting us to live. To live as a Christian, to work as a Christian, to raise our children as Christians, to love our spouses like we are Christians, and greater still, to be the bride of Christ as we come together to glorify God as Christians. I mean, we've got a book. We don't have to guess about these things. Paul lays them all here in front of us so that we can live a life pleasing to God. Isn't that what you want to do? Isn't that why your heart has changed? I have people coming to me saying, I don't want to do the things I used to do. I want to live according, and I remember texting with Kyle. Kyle will remember this. I remember this specifically. I couldn't even believe that he was 12 years old when he said it, but he wanted to know more of God so he wouldn't sin against God. Hey, listen, they didn't teach him that in high school. The Holy Spirit taught him that. So we have a book, we have these imperatives, and we can live this way. And it's in many ways, this is the failure of evangelicalism. It's what we like to call weak sauce church. Nice church, right, Bobby? Not warrior church, but nice church, weak sauce church. 
That is, they try to placate lost people by into liking them because being nice to them would surely yield their coming and wanting to come to church. But it's in that placating they bifurcate their own life. It's in trying to please the outside world that they split their own life in two. They lived a secular life at work during the week, and they do the Christian things on Wednesday night, maybe at prayer meeting or Awana's and Sunday mornings. But through the week, they live like the rest of the world. That's not Christian culture. Let me tell you this. If you're a mom here or a dad, by the time your child gets through K-12 through education today, they will have spent 14,000 hours being indoctrinated by what they get indoctrinated with there. You tell me if you're offsetting that in your attempts to work and bring them to church and live bifurcated lives. That's not Christian culture. That's not Christian culture. Too often people just put their heads down and they don't say anything. They think to themselves, well, if I just put my head down, stay below the radar, not cause any waves and draw my paycheck, I'll make it through till retirement. All the while, the culture around us has rotted. And what scripture tells us, beloved, our life, the Christian culture we live each day is preserving salt in the culture around us. And if the salt has lost its savor, it's no good but yet to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. There's a big difference. The book tells us what a Christian life is. The the book tells us what a worthy walk is. And that's why uh, that is the culture which we live in. Many are living and it's a lie. Christians cannot live that way. It is not worthy of the calling to which they've been called. So we need a real focus here. We need to let go of the past and pragmatism and understand what Paul is saying in chapters 4 through 6. And I think we need to understand in a very deep, necessary way. That is, Christian culture is not just lived on Sunday, but yet we live it all the days of our lives. Uh, It's one of the reasons I come up with the Latin phrase. Uh, I didn't come up with it. It's been used since the Reformation. Coram Deo. That is Latin and translated before the face of God. That's how we live Before the face of God. The reformers utilized that Latin refrain to establish an eternal truth that we extrapolate. If we fully extrapolate it, we see the biblical principles just running through all of it. Because here, the believer, all of life for the believer is lived, quorum Deo, in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. It's either lived like that or it's not. There's no in-between. How many times have you heard me say from this pulpit or in Bible study here that there is no neutral? There is no such thing as secular. They may have took the Christian religion out of school, but there's quite frankly still a religion there, and it's in all of culture. And it doesn't matter whether you're an auto mechanic, whether you're a heating and cooling guy, whether you're a lawyer or whatever you do. You live your life before the eyes, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth to test the children of man. You live your life quorum Deo. In fact, that's our mission for the school. We call it classically training minds to know wisdom and faithfully forming hearts to worship in the presence, under the authority, and to the glory of God. I think there's nothing more important. And there's nothing more important to train young minds to. Because culture is what you worship. There's a prefix. Again, I stand on this fact always that there's words do mean things. And There's a prefix on this word culture that you recognize is the word cult. 
And the definition of the word cult is this religious system of veneration and devoted uh, and devotion directed towards a particular figure or object. And we've often used that as a pejorative. We had a cult called the Branch Davidians or the Johnstown or the Manson family or Mormons. You guys recognize all those cults, right? But we are a Christian cult. It's all right to use that word. It just means a religion, and we are a Christian cult, and what we worship is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true God. So here, Paul is speaking of how to build Christian culture. And so it follows from that truth he is going to lay down these principal imperatives that are based on the foundation of God's redemptive work in his blessed Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is for the worship of the Lord and the culture of the church. If it is good for that, it is good for man. Okay? You want to work with me? You want to build a Christian culture? You want to work through these? All right. So that's the, that's the opening of the sermon. That's the introduction now to the sermon for the next couple of hours. Uh, I know. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. And you remember I said moments ago at the beginning, this first has implications for the individual believer and secondarily for the church. It has corporate implications. We then see Paul's focus begin to grow as we just kind of read down through this passage. I urge you, therefore, to walk in verse 1 in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He begins the foundational ethic here, and there's a reason why these are in the order that they're in, because there's a logical progression to Paul's writing. There are no mistakes in what the Holy Spirit has done. There are no coincidences with God. There's a reason why humility is the first ethical concern on Paul's mind as he starts to talk about the unity in the church. Look at it as it grows, with all humility, right? And humility grows into gentleness and patience. That's meekness, beloved. Once you understand humility, there's something that changes about you in the way you live and the way you see reality and ration, uh, the way things are rational to you. And from that, from that humility grows that meekness, that gentleness and that patience. And from that gentleness and patience comes a love, bearing with one another in love. And you become now eager to maintain unity and peace. And these, these things are not by mistake because they're so important in the church. And then he gives us the Trinitarian formula that is the foundation here of what he's going to say about unity. And what Jesus will say about it in John chapter 17 is that he wants us to be unified with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit the way that Christ was unified with the Father. And that is a very personal and intimate relationship like he talks about in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Literally, face to face with God. Intimate relationship. Jesus says, I want them to be perfectly one like we're perfectly one so that they can understand the love and the fellowship and the community that the Trinity of God shares himself. So there's a logical progression here. So these things grow and fully mature and become the ethical characteristics and these things bring an eagerness to maintain unity and peace. Beloved, this I, t I, get, I present to you this morning is the beginning of Christian culture. The beginning of Christian culture. This is how the church, this is how this church, you people, beloved, the people of God, and the people that God will add to this ministry, this is how we will thrive. This is how we will thrive. Jesus says, this is how they'll recognize us on the outside. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. 
You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I put it out on the sign this week, and I kind of tongue-in-cheek. I said, why is unity so lacking? And the quick answer there is because humility is so lacking. Unity is lacking in the world because humility is lacking, and these things are necessarily tied to truth. And unity is lacking in the church because this foundational ethic, this beginning of unity that starts with humility, is lacking. We can add another attribute, and it will become so evident over the next few weeks, but humility leads to unity because it rejoices in truth and orderliness. God is not a God of confusion, but of orderliness, right? And all the churches and the saints. On the sign outside, I said, I put that. Why is unity so lacking? And I think that's a fundamental question, but it's a bit rhetorical. Because humility bears meekness, and meekness, gentleness, and patience, and patience, and gentleness, mature, to love, which further brings unity and peace. So to thrive is what we want in this Christian community, in this Christian culture, and humility is the ethical characteristic we need to thrive and have unity. So it becomes very important to get the biblical definition of humility down pat. It becomes very important. Let's start just momentarily this morning with the word. And it's the word translated in the SV from the Greek, translated humility. As I said earlier, I like the King James Version. It translated lowliness. Either one of these things do the word justice, but it's the Latin word humus, which means earth or grounded. It means you're down to earth, that you're humble, beloved. And obviously, immediately one can begin to see that this is just the opposite of the world, right? This is the opposite of the culture in which we live. They don't celebrate humility. They do just the opposite. They celebrate pride. In fact, this is Pride Month, and it is the height of spiritual warfare because of these two words and these two postures before God. It is the posture of humility that allows us to see God and find repentance, and it is the posture of pride. John MacArthur says the greatest sin that man could ever sin is to think that he is smarter than God, to have pride in his heart that he doesn't need to follow God or understand God or listen to God's rules, that he can make up his own rules and live the way he wants to do. This is compromise with the world and why Christian culture is so necessary in the church. We need to get it right at church. If we get it right at church, it will be right at home. And the corollary of that is true. If we get it right individually in our lives, as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a woman, as a wife, as a mother, we'll get this right in the church. We must not equivocate here on humility. We must not fail to act like so many churches, I believe, have and have recently done. We must stand for the truth of what humility is. If you compromise one little bit, you're going to give two little bits. Two little bits become three little bits. You guys have heard me talk about this. It never just remains one compromise. It always leads to more. And we're, we were just going over last night a video of Andy Stanley and how he's compromised. He first started with him letting go of biblical truth. Now he's saying the Bible's not really necessarily true. And it's going to lead to his full compromise on LGBTQ issues. He's fell off the slope because it, listen, Methodists are doing the same thing. The church is here, and the ones back in Missouri, they're splitting and breaking up. The SBC is going to meet this month, literally, to decide whether they believe. That you, it doesn't matter which 
article that they're arguing over, but they're trying to decide what they're trying to decide is if they believe what God has said and if they're going to be humble enough to follow what God said or they're going to set their own precedents and go with the way the culture wants to go. That's what they're all doing. We cannot compromise. What these men and churches are doing is directly opposed to God. It's pride in their hearts, beloved. It's the opposite of humility. It's the height of hubris to look at God's perfect law and walk away in some high-minded fashion believing you know better than God. And as I said, it's the opposite of humility. It is pride. This is exactly why this whole section of Ephesians is about the ethical actions and, and begins and grows from this one word translated humble and lowliness. You can then begin to plainly see why Paul, um, you can plainly begin to see with the church today and the denominational strifes that we see around us, the infighting, why the Spirit would guide Paul to write that humility is the chiefest of those ethical characteristics by which the corporate unity of the church stands, by which the corporate unity of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, either thrives or languishes. And in if the bride of Christ thrives or languishes, then we too either thrive or languish, depending on how we believe what God is teaching us about humility. Very well then, what is this humility and how do we get to it? Well, this one proposition, this is all I want to work on for the rest of the morning. I know you guys are getting hungry because I am. Humility is the result of a right and rational anthropology. Don't let that word scare you. Humility is the result of a right and rational anthropology. Anthropos is man. That is logical, rational study of man. Paul writes in Romans 12, 3, for by the, and these are going to be very familiar words, by the grace given to me, I say to you, to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And here is the inflection point of humility. This is what I want you to get. This is rightly understanding who you are as a man. And you will not rightly understand who you are as a man or woman until you reflect upon who God is. You understand that? That's what Paul's saying here. For by the grace given to me, in other words, he knew these were going to be hard words. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. That is, be rational. Think about this. Who is God? Who is the creator? Who is the one that placed you on this earth, right? Think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to you. So not to think too highly of yourselves means to gauge yourself against a standard. And what is that standard? How do we know? Well, Paul had just told us in chapter 2. Read there Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 20 through 22, it's the very end of the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. He said that the church, or the household of God, verse 20, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Right? That's the word of God. The apostles wrote the New Testament, the prophets, the old. That is that it's built on the word of God, the written word of God, but it's also built, and it's all plumb-lined. It's all built on the cornerstone, the living word of God, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together. In other words, it is by the, 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 the comparing ourselves to Christ, it is understanding who we are according to Christ, it is understanding who we are according to the words of the apostles and the prophets that we set the plumb line of the foundation for the church. 
That is that we measure our work and who we are and what we are as men by Christ, by God. And that gets at the heart of humanity because once you're held to that light, who we are before God, what are we in comparison with him, you begin to understand who you truly are. You begin to order a right and rational understanding of man. This is man's chiefest of concerns and only when we judge ourselves with sober judgment will we begin to explore what it means to be humble. Turn with me very quickly, if you will, to the book of Acts chapter 17. Just at the end of that chapter, Paul lays down some truth that I want you to consider this morning because we are contingent to God. He's created each one of us, so there's a very interesting question that comes out. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 28. Paul's speaking in the Aragopagos here, and they had made a monument to the unknown God. Paul understood that as an opportunity to tell them about the one true God. And when he does tell them about the true God, he's saying he's not like these other gods, but he's beyond that. He transcends all of their knowledge. And he has to be revealed to them. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he, in other words, he's self-existent, right? He's self-existent. He is what created all that we see. There is nothing outside of him, nothing greater than him. This is the God that when we look at our life as an open book before him, we understand truly who we are, and this is where humility comes. He himself, he is the one who gives to all man life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Not only did God create everything that exists, but he created us, and he's determined their time and their periods and their boundaries, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from us. For it is in him, beloved, it is in God we live and move and have our being. So the question that is derived from this is what does the creature, what does the creature, what does the creature, which each one of us are, owe? To his creator. And the simple is, the simple answer is that we owe everything to God. Jonathan Edwards wrote this word, these words, if we are ignorant of our meanness as compared with him, the most essential thing, and that which is, in, is original and true man is wanting. If we are ignorant of our meanness as compared with him, the most essential thing, and that which is original and true humanity is and always will be wanting. What Edwards and Paul and the Holy Spirit understood and are saying is that humility, humility is unobtainable by looking inward, beloved. You must understand that if we fail to calibrate our sense of value by the greatest of all beings, that our judgment of our means and our virtue, our worth and our value, in light of all other measures or standard, will be out of calibration. It will be out of calibration. In Proverbs 1.7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's when you begin to understand who you are, when you understand 
who God is. But the opposite is true, beloved. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the purposeful suppression of who we are before God is the beginning of insanity. It's the beginning of pride. It's the beginning of the downfall of man. That is, if we do not first judge and prove who we are before God, we will then fail to understand who we truly are before other men. And the first question you should have at the end of that is, can we go home now, right? You've made me feel so bad. How could I ever be compared to God? How could I ever hold myself up as a light to God? I'm only going to find that I am worthless. I'm small. I'm little. I am nothing. I'm only going to be defeated. If I continue to hold myself up before God, what am I going to find there other than defeat? Let me tell you what you're going to find there, beloved. Grace. Grace that is greater than all your sin. Grace, grace. God's grace. That's where you come to the end of who you are and you grab out and hold all who he is. You can't do it. You're not that person. That's the very point of humility is to understand who you are so that you can have all his blessings because you will have none of them if you hold on to your pride and your foolishness. And Paul knows you can't have a Christian culture unless you first Know who you are before God. James chapter 4. Just a moment more, if you dare. James chapter 4. Verses 6 through 10. James chapter 4. Paul, um, James writes these words. This is hope for those who truly look in the lens of who they are before God. This is the hope that humility brings. Listen. Hope disconnects you from the narcissistic world around you. Or humility disconnects you from the narcissistic world around you. Because they live in the fact and the hope that they can handle all of the world's ills. And they can't. But, he says in verse 6, He, God, gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He flees from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. As I said, as you understand who you are, you understand yourself as a sinner. This is the heart and center of the gospel, beloved. This is why Jesus died, so that you could have forgiveness of your sins once you got to the point of knowing that you are a wretched sinner. This is where you get grace. This is where you get salvation and hope. This is where you get abundant life. This is where all the blessings flood in. As you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It is at the base of who you are you find out all of who God is. Listen to me, humility is a product of the gospel. Humiliation is the bitter fruit of pride. Humility is the product of the gospel. Humiliation is the bitter 
fruit of pride. Beloved, there's hope. Why? How do we have hope? Because it's in understanding who we are and applying that to the lives we can be better men and women. When we are humble men and women, we can live before the Lord in an understanding way. We can live before our wife and our spouse in an understanding way. We can be the husband and wife God's called us to be. We can be the dad or mom that God's called us to be. We can be the employee. We can be the friend. We can be the leader. We can disconnect from the narcissistic world, and we can be truly Christian culture. And I will just leave you with this this morning as we turn to Philippians chapter 2. Paul's perfect admonition of this in Philippians chapter 2. It's no coincidence, beloved. It's no coincidence. There is no humility necessary in the divine. But look what it says about Jesus here. Paul starts there in verse 3. Eh, let's just go back to verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says, and, and have that same mind, having that same love, being in full accord and of one mind, that's the unity and the bond of peace and the spirit of unity that Paul talks about over in Ephesians. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Beloved, he's speaking, he's speaking here in the context of the church. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to that of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, a servant. And being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, does you see it there, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Beloved, it's no coincidence that the one who loved you the most was humbled the most. <laughs> the one who had the greatest love for mankind was humbled more than any other who has ever came. That's our pattern and manner of life. That's Christian culture. We can live that life because Christ died so that we could live that life. Right? He gave his life. He humbled from the highest exalted position. The one who we're supposed to compare ourselves to. The pattern. The cornerstone. The plumb line. The perfect one. The Lord of lords and the King of kings, Jesus Christ, humbled himself from heaven to earth on a cross. Beloved, that's the pattern for humility. That way down is the way up. That's victory in Christian culture. That's victory in this life. That's victory to live the abundant life here in this place that Christ has called us to live. And it's ours in Jesus Christ. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to a close this morning. We see at the point of our humility is a point where we find grace.
a point where we find gentleness and patience. Father, thank you for this. This is not easy. To understand where we are before you and who we are is to only understand how much you've loved us, that Jesus came to die, that he was the perfect sacrifice for our sins, that it was in his humiliation that he was exalted to the highest place. And it is in our humiliation that you exalt us to a higher place. Father, help us to live this life. As we go forward in this with hearts full of cheer, I pray that you'll encourage us each and every day to give way to our pride, push it far from us. As James says there, that you resist the proud and give grace to the humble, that we would push away our pride and take in all the grace that you have to give us. Father, that's my prayer for this congregation, for those listening this morning. And as we move forward, as you continue to build this church, Father, you've doubled us in size. I look out. I took a picture this morning. I have proof that you've more than done that. You've been gracious to us. Continue to build your church, Father. And may we come together as those who have lovingly been humbled by the perfect, perfect blood of Jesus Christ, saved in the gospel, saved in the gospel of our pride, and living for his glory. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Junior.